0: becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead.
1: Philippians chapter 3 is where we're going to be at this morning. We're stepping back into uh, our series through the book of Philippians. The great book of Philippians in this teaching series that we're calling For Our Joy. For our joy, and the reason we're calling it that is because this this big sort of primary theme that shows up again and again throughout this book, written by the apostle Paul, is of joy. And it's this idea that man, if if, if you just look around us, you see that everyone's trying to peddle joy to us, right? Every every brand, every influencer, every every. every like song or show, any any form of media is trying to 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 push onto us some sort of uh, product of joy, some sort of narrative of joy. And what we see in the book of Philippians is that our 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 deepest joy can be satisfied in Jesus, in ways that that that, that just our souls have always longed for. Now, how many of you guys? As we're looking into Philippians 3, how many of you guys have had to fill out a resume recently? Fill out a resume or application for a job or, or, or maybe apply for a school? How does that process work? Right. I was helping a friend of mine do this recently. Uh, he was looking for a new ministry job and we were sitting down and, and he was writing out all of a sudden. He was being like kind of overly uh, timid and humble about his resume. I'm like, dude, why didn't you put that one thing? Like, You got to say that. Like, That will mean something, right? Because that, that's how that process works, right? You put your best foot forward. You, you talk up, hopefully honestly, what sets you apart. Why they should take you. And then you submit it, you submit this this application or your resume, and then you hope to receive their approval, right? And that's how that works. Like what you've accomplished, where you've been, the things that you've accomplished, the things that you've done, they, they matter on a resume. I think in some sense, that's sort of a great picture or metaphor of how we really all tend to live our lives day in and day out. We're in this constant sort of rhythm of seeking the approval of someone to be seen, to be recognized, to be received, to prove to someone that we're worthy of acceptance. Maybe this morning as I'm, I'm saying that, you're thinking like, yeah, that's what I do with my boss, right? For you, that's, that's your boss or, or maybe your colleagues. Or it might be sort of the people that, that you spend time around, that you hang out with, your neighbors, your community. Or for you, maybe it's, maybe it's your parents, your family. You find yourself saying, hey, look, look what I do, how I fit in, how I've proved myself. Here's why you should take me in, Right? Obviously, we're not saying that explicitly, but maybe we imply that by the things that we say and do in front of them. Why do we do that? Why, why do we do that? It, I think it's because at a deeper level, at a deeper level, the reason that we just relentlessly pursue and search for approval is because we're made for it. We're made for approval. We were made to be accepted by one another in community. That was God's original design. Before sin entered the world, we were made to be accepted by one another in community and accepted by God. A lot of us, really, we, we treat our relationship with God that way, don't we? Where We're, we're, we're constantly trying to prove ourselves to him with, with our religious works. But Paul, in Philippians 3, he does something fascinating here. He takes his list of things... His list of things that he's done, his impressive religious resume, and he crumples it up and he throws it away. Calls it rubbish. Why does he do that? Because Paul knows that deep joy, the type of joy that matters, is found in gaining God's approval without having to prove yourself. (coughs) He knows that deep joy is found in gaining God's approval without having to prove yourself. And so let's start now in verse 1, and I want you to see how Paul eventually got to that conclusion. He's halfway through his letter to this church in Philippi, and he says in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, which is hilarious, right? He's halfway through. It's like the most cliche pastor move to say, finally, or in conclusion, like halfway through your message. But he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. There's our theme for the book Rejoice in the Lord. He says, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, what does he mean? He's saying, Look, I'm going to remind you right now of some familiar things that you know I've told you before over the years. You see, Paul helped plant this church about 10 to 11 years earlier, but now he's in chains, he's in prison for preaching the gospel. And he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi because he loves them. He misses them. He wants them to know how he's doing, wants them to know that he's going to be okay. And he says at this point to this church that he's really familiar with, that he spent years with before, he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. He's saying, I'm going to remind you about some familiar things I've taught you over the years, and it's going to be for your safety, for your protection. Why does he say that? It's because there are aspects of our faith that we need to rehearse and we need to be reminded of because we are prone to forget that. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you've been a follower of Jesus for, for, for at least a couple years, you know that that's true, right? There, there are certain aspects of our faith that we need to rehearse and be reminded of, otherwise we'll, we'll forget. And so Paul says, look, I'm going to remind you of some really important things. It's for your spiritual safety to, to make sure that you don't fall into error. Now, why, why, why does he say this that way? Why, why is this such a big deal? Because there are some forces, some forces that are out to steal your Christian joy. There are forces that are out to steal your joy. They could be people, could be an ideology, some ways of thinking that if you receive them, what they offer, your joy will start to wither away. And And so Paul gives us, first, he gives us this, a word of caution. This is Paul's word of caution that we see. You see, there's a group of people that Paul's warning them about, cautioning them about, who, who insisted that as a Christian, you need to constantly be proving yourself to God. How exhausting does that sound? A lot of people think that that's what Christianity is. My guess is that there's a handful of you here in this room that think that that's what Christianity is. That in some sense, what Jesus did on the cross, in our place, for our sins, isn't enough, and that you've got to constantly earn your spot at the table or on the team. Right? Like a basketball player, at the end of their contract, if, if you if you prove yourself during the season when it matters, then you'll get re-signed, right? It's what everyone hopes for. But Paul, he knows that that way of thinking is nonsense. He knows that's rubbish. He knows that that is spiritually, just a, a spiritually dangerous and exhausting way to live. It causes destruction to the soul. And because it's so dangerous... Because it, it causes destruction to the soul and because Paul loves this church and Philippi so much, he gives them now this word of caution. We see it in verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, Paul, gets, Paul gets a little snarky here, doesn't he? He gets snarky at this point in this letter. His tone kind of changes. Like, first couple chapters is pretty nice and encouraging. Now he starts to use sort of graphic language. And here he warns them, a group of hyper-religious people whose teaching will steal their joy. And what does he call them? calls them dogs. What picture comes in your mind when you hear the word dog? Right? Whatever, Whatever picture comes in your mind, we need to sort of redraw that image for you. Because Paul's context... It's a lot different than ours. When he uses that word dog, he means something different than what we think of. You see, many of you have dogs. You love your dogs. I don't. I'm allergic to them. No offense. <laughs> but generally speaking, people love dogs, right? Like, they're cute and they're trained. Man's best friend. Some of you put your little onesies on your dog like they're little slobbery humans. But in Paul's day... In Paul's day, dogs were not pets. That was a foreign idea. Right? Dogs were not pets. They were wild. They were disease-carrying scavengers. They were dangerous. They ran free. They bred out in public. They chased people, went where they didn't belong. And if you got bit by one of these dogs, you ran the risk of infection and disease and decay. And Paul's saying, those who teach self-righteous religion that puffs yourself up, they're like feral dogs get in the church and cause harm wherever they go. He says, watch out for them. You know what self-righteous religion is? It's when you try to prove to God and or to others that you're worthy just simply on the basis of how faithful you are. Not on what, how faithful Jesus is, but on how faithful you are, which doesn't I mean, that doesn't sound that all that bad on the per, per, surface, except when you start to dig into the heart of it. You see that self-righteous religion is rooted in having too big an opinion of what you contribute to salvation and too little of you of what Jesus contributes. That's what makes it dangerous. That's why Paul gives this word of caution because self-righteous religion is rooted in having too big of an opinion of what you contribute to salvation and too little of you of what Jesus contributes. Now, I ran across this tweet from from Scott Sauls this week. I think it was yesterday. It was like perfect timing. He said, when we add anything to Christ, we inevitably subtract from him. If you add anything to Christ, you inevitably subtract from him. Why? Because when you add anything to Christ, you're ultimately saying, he's not enough. His work is not sufficient. That's what they were doing. That's what this people Paul's calling out is doing. Paul calls them those who mutilate the flesh. He calls them that because these were people that said, look, just resting in Jesus for your joy and your salvation isn't enough. That's what these people were saying. They're saying resting in Jesus for joy and for salvation. That's not enough. Specifically, they said, if you really want to prove that Jesus has saved you, then you need to get circumcised too. Then you'll know you're saved. So their belief wasn't salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Their belief was salvation by Jesus plus circumcision. But Jesus plus anything ruins the whole thing. The whole gospel. It's no gospel at all. You see people knew that this group of dogs as Paul called them, this group of, of, of people were uh, they knew them as, as, as the Judaizers. that's what they were called. And these Judaizers, they actually uh, took this idea but they twisted it from the Bible. You see in Genesis, there's this guy named Abraham. And God told Abraham to circumcise himself as a symbol of this covenant relationship that his people, his family would have with God, There's this new nation of Israel. If that was me, I would have asked for another covenant sign. <laughs> But Abraham was humble enough to take that command like a champ. And so from that point on, God's people in the Old Testament, the Jewish people who were waiting for the coming Messiah, Jesus, they had all their boys circumcised as a sign that set them apart as God's people. A a very intimate sign that set them apart as as, as a people who belonged to God, who loved him and served him. In the Old Testament, we read that this is just an outward sign of an inward reality that says we as a people belong to God. But now when Jesus came, (laughs) when Jesus came, that old covenant with all its traditions and and its ceremonial laws, when Jesus came, that old covenant was fulfilled. It was completely fulfilled. And so you don't need the mark of circumcision anymore. You just need faith in Jesus Christ. Christ. In Ezekiel and Galatians and other places, and it, it talks about a spiritual circumcision of the heart. The point of the Old Testament circumcision was to, to point to a, a circumcision of a heart, to say that our hearts are what belong to God. Here's what it says in verse 3 of our text. It says, For we are, Paul says, the circumcision. He says this to the church. He says, we are the circumcision. Notice he's, he's saying, he's not talking about getting circumcised. He says, we are the circumcision. What does that mean? It's people who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Here's how Paul says it elsewhere in Galatians chapter six. Just so you know, I'm not it's kind of stretching that verse in Galatians six, Paul just straight up says, far be it for me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Basically, he's saying, look, circumcision or uncircumcision, I don't care what you got going on down there. He says, the point is, the end of verse 15, a new creation. The point is, has God made you new? Has he made you a new creature, a new creation creation? Has he impacted, not just changed you on the outside, but he changed you on the inside, recreated you? That's what the gospel does. That's why Paul calls these Judaizers that insisted upon circumcision uh, to prove that you belong to Jesus. That's why Paul calls them mutilators of the flesh. Kind of graphic. Because they insist on outward performance that has no connection to anything that was happening inwardly. They turned their version of Christianity into a Jesus plus works religion. And there's examples, if you look closely around us, of, 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 of how we do this today. You know, there's some that say, like, if you want to prove that you're, you're, you're saved, then you need Jesus plus, you know, like, baptism. Certain mode of baptism. Or, or you need Jesus plus the gift of tongues. Or you need Jesus plus membership at a very particular kind of church or, or tradition. Or you need Jesus plus uh, uh, belonging to a certain political party. Or Jesus plus a certain uh, 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 type, type, type of uh, uh, a religious ritual. But anytime you add to the sufficient work of Jesus in the gospel, and you say, look, if you don't have this thing too, then you're not saved. Then you've actually taken away from the gospel you've subtracted from the gospel not added to it because you're saying the gospel is not enough you've made it less efficient than than it is does that make sense so that's why paul gets a little aggressive here in his word of caution it's totally warranted he's saying look out for those dogs watch out for any person any idea or ideology that threatens to destroy your confidence in christ's sufficient work By adding to the gospel, Paul says these Judaizers, they were perverting it. But then he opens up about how Jesus started to change everything for him. The whole rest of the verses, Paul opens up about how Jesus changed everything for him. You see, Paul talks about how how he once tried to prove himself with his religious work. He once made the same mistake that they did. Tried to prove himself with his religious resume, but by the grace of God, Jesus changed that. That's his whole way of thinking. And so we see Paul's trajectory sort of take three steps in the next several verses. First, we see the pursuit of approval. Paul relentlessly pursued approval. You see, before Paul became a Christian, his name was Saul. And as Saul, he was a Jewish religious leader with really a, a quite impressive resume. And Paul knew that that but at the time he knew that all are gonna stand before God one day in judgment. And so in anticipation of that day, he lived a really devoted religious life. A self-righteous religious life of proving himself to God and to others, building up his spiritual resume, which which now he says he considers it worthless. But back then he was all about it. Right? And what's wild when we look at, at these next few verses, what's wild is how similar. His list can be to a lot of ours. Paul lists these, these things that were really ended up serving as false saviors to him because he put his ultimate hope in them. And to varying degrees, I think many of us in this room, we do the same thing. Let's, let's read the passage. He says, He says, Now if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more, he's saying there. If you want to brag, look, I can brag even more. Verse 5, he says, So I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Let's go through each of these one by one. First, Paul points out how he used to appeal to his religious rituals. He says there, look at it, circumcise on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He's appealing to this religious ritual of circumcision, right? This, the, 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 same, the same error that these Judaizers were making. But Paul's saying here, he's like, look, salvation is not about a list of rituals like baptism or like vain, repetitive prayers, right? But it's about leaning into a relationship with Jesus. That's what what salvation is about. He says, and then he he, he appealed uh, to his faithful upbringing. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. On the eighth day. By saying the eighth day, he was actually pointing out that he was born into a faithful Jewish family. See, you couldn't be a later convert to Judaism and claim to be circumcised on the eighth day. He's saying, not only was I great, but my parents were great too. They circumcised me and they did it right at the right time, right? And look, some of us, we think, we think the same way. We think like, if, if, if only I grew up in the church, if only I grew up in that kind of church rather than this other kind of church, then, then maybe I'd be a strong Christian. Maybe if I grew up in the church at all, then I'd be a strong Christian. Growing up in a Christian home, though, doesn't automatically make you a Christian, As a matter of fact, I mean, a lot of the people that consider King's Cross, their church home, I know that's a lot of your stories, right? Grew up going to church, grew up going to youth group, went to all the conferences and all the retreats, went away to college, and then you're like, peace, I'm doing my own thing now, right? Then you got married and you had kids, and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) Maybe Jesus can help. (laughs) Maybe he can but that's what Paul appealed to, and he used to appeal to. He used to appeal to his faithful upbringing. And then he, you see next that he also appealed to his social position. We see this when he said, he talks about the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. That was one of two tribes of Israel that did not rebel against God when the kingdom of Israel split. So this was this was a statement of his status. That's like saying like saying you're from the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin is saying like you're you're a Kennedy in America right? He's like, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. That's, that's another uh, a statement of his status. He's saying that he has a pure Jewish bloodline on both sides of his family, a Hebrew of Hebrews, all the way back to Abraham and Sarah. He's like, look it up. And then he appeals next to his religious passion. He had intense religious passion. You see that when he says as to the law? I was a Pharisee. Being a Pharisee it's like, like an elite form of rabbi, right? Being a Pharisee was a badge of honor in this culture. If you were a Pharisee, you were well-respected, you were well-educated. Paul happened to study under Gamaliel, who was this premier teacher of the law, a rabbi of rabbis at the time. And to, to kind of double down on his religious passion, Paul says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. You see, Paul was so hell-bent, on defending his self-righteousness that he was willing to destroy anyone who threatened it. Namely, he, thre- he threatened the worshipers of Jesus. Killed a lot of them, including Stephen in the book of Acts. He was a religious activist in that sense. A lot, a lot, a lot of people today, we, we, we think that religious passion is the way that you get to God, is the way that you please God, right? You want to make God happy, you got to do Jesus stuff and be passionate about it. And Paul says, no, that's not the point. That's not the point. That's not where your ultimate hope is at. And then we see Paul, Paul now in, 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 in the next verse, he appealed lastly to his moral performance. He says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Which is a bold statement. Because the Old Testament has like over 600 commandments in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law, the Torah, and Paul considers himself blameless in them. Blameless according to the law. I mean, at one point, Jesus makes fun of this group of Pharisees for actually like meticulously measuring out and tithing from their spice jars. Right? That's how committed these Pharisees were. You know you're committed when you're measuring out like 10% of your pumpkin spice. <laughs> That's Paul's list. This is Paul's list. And so you bundle all of this up, Paul's religious experience, his upbringing, his social position, his religious passion and fervor, his performance. what is he giving us? He's given us his resume. He's given us his religious resume, and that's exactly what it is. It's a, it's a resume. And by Judaizer standards, this is a great resume. By the standards of those that Paul called dogs, that he warned the church in Philippi about, this was a great resume. Again, what's a resume? It's when you put your your best foot forward, placing all your merits and experience on on performance, on on putting it all out on display. For what purpose? So you can get in. So you can be accepted. To make a case for your approval into some place that you're currently outside. Paul had this impressive spiritual resume. He says it's worthless, though. I wonder where it is that you're searching for approval this morning. I wonder who you're seeking approval from. I wonder what ways you're seeking that approval. Where is it that you think you need to get that approval? What is it that you think you need to add maybe to your spiritual resume before God? Here's the thing. The more Paul learned this, he he learned that the more you try to earn God's approval, the more you'll either get proud like the Judaizers or fail and be exhausted like everyone else. Both of those will destroy your soul. The more you relentlessly pursue and try to earn God's approval the more you'll either get proud and puffed up like these Judaizers these mutilators of the flesh or you'll just fail and be exhausted by it like like, like the rest of us both of those things will destroy your soul in his uh, short story Good Old Neon David Foster Wallace talks about uh, what he calls the the fraudulence paradox (laughs) Which, which I think really captures one of the most common and, and, and depressing human experiences. He says the fraudulence paradox is, is, is about how the more you try to prove yourself, which we all do, the more you just kind of feel like a fraud on the inside. When you have a moment of silence where you can be honest with yourself. And then the more you feel like a fraud, the more you feel like you have to, to prove yourself the more you try to prove yourself, the more you feel like a fraud and it's a vicious cycle that goes over and over and over again. We do it with our, in our social situations. We do it in church. We do it online with our social networks. Trying to prove ourselves to others. Feeling like a fraud because of, of how we're doing that. And then trying to prove ourselves more. It's a vicious cycle. You see... What well, 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 Paul really realized, our next point, is why we have this need for approval? The need for approval. He starts to have this epiphany. He t- starts explaining it in verse 7. He says, well, whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had from, from that resume, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You see, Paul knew that his greatest problem was not if his resume was good enough but his greatest problem we could say his truest problem was if his righteousness was good enough see that's what the whole search for approval is really about it's about righteousness it's about this this sense that we we know like things are not I mean, man, just just, just look at, at at the last couple of weeks. We just all have this sense things are not right in this world. And then, with, with enough time to ourselves, we start to look at ourselves and realize, like, man, things are not right in me either. We have a righteousness problem. Whether or not it's it's, it's whether or not we measure up to the right standards. That's what righteousness is about. And then Paul has this epiphany here. He says, look, whatever gain my resume got me, I consider it loss. I consider it worthless to me for the sake of knowing Christ. Why does he say that? Why does he say that all these great things are now worthless to him? Why would he consider his impressive resume a loss, as he says? Like That sounds drastic, right? Kind of extreme language. Why does he consider it loss? It's because, he says, of the surpassing worth Some translations say the surpassing greatness of something else, of Christ. It's like when the sun comes out and you can't see the stars anymore, no matter how bright they were the night before. The things that used to shine bright for Paul, his faithful upbringing, his experience, his zeal, his fervor, his passion, his moral performance. All these things that used to shine bright for Paul just starts to fade away in the light of Christ the Son. Just in case he didn't make that point clear, he kind of doubles down in verse 8 and he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss." Not just what I, what I, what I consider for. I consider everything is lost because of the surpassing worth. There's that phrase of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's saying, look, knowing Jesus is so primary to me now, it's so supreme that the things I used to find my identity in, the things that used to drive me, no longer have power over me. They no longer control me. They no longer influence the way I think and the way that I live. He's saying that the worth of Jesus outshines the worth of my merit. What Jesus accomplished is worth so much more than my accomplishments, Paul says. You see, Jesus changed everything for Paul. He changed everything for him. Changed the way he thought his whole his worldview, the way he viewed the world around him, the way he viewed himself, his self-view, because he's gotten to know Jesus. Paul's gotten more and more acquainted with Jesus and all in who he is, the gift that he offers in his life, death, and resurrection. Paul realized that the acceptance and the approval that he needed the most, his performance could never provide the acceptance and approval that you and I need the most. Our performance is not enough to provide. That's why, that's why we need Jesus. That's the point. That's why he came to make things right, right in the world, right in our hearts, righteousness, to give us his rightness, his righteousness. The good news for us this morning is that Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient, One day, as Paul knew, we'll all stand before a just and holy God who is perfect in all his ways, whose nature is so pure and so beautiful and and, and so grand that it demands perfection in his presence. The fact that God demands perfection in his presence is not because he has a big ego. It's because he's the ultimate standard of all that is true, good, and beautiful. Anything that's imperfect before his presence will just dissolve and wither away, be destroyed. And when that day comes for you, when that day comes for me, what will we offer to God to be accepted? Hey, look what I did. (laughs) How good you are. A performance. How my resume is longer than my rap sheet? That used to be Paul's assumption. That used to be Paul's assumption. But here, he came to realize now, and he's sharing with us, that's what the self-righteous religious person does. These Judaizers, the self-righteous religious person, he comes with his resume, and the self-righteous says, hey God, here are the great things that I've done. Lord, you, you can see I'm a good person, and so I've earned your approval. And Paul here, he says, look, I used to think that way. I used to think that way. But now, because I met Jesus, I have a clearer view of how awful I really am. But but I also have a clearer view of how beautiful and gracious He really is. And because I met Him, I consider all that worthless, Paul says. And now... When we all stand before God, all that matters is that I know that Jesus is my Savior, who lived a truly perfect life that that I could not, suffered the death that I deserved to die, paying the penalty for my sin and rising to give me new life. That, Paul said, is all that matters. Jesus takes away the stain of my sins and he gives me the robes. Of his righteousness. Here's the big kicker. We see in the rest of verse 8, Paul says, for his sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as, what does it say? Rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What does he call his resume? Rubbish. That actual Greek word there, skubala, is a pretty crass word in the ancient Greek. Skubala, go ahead and say that, skubala. Watch your mouth. <laughs> but seriously, it's a vulgar word in the ancient Greek. Bible translators are, can be too gentle sometimes in a few places, and this is one of them. Skubala in the ancient Greek and when you look at other literature around that time, it's a crude word that literally means crap. You did not hear that, Geneva. <laughs> but see I, I mean, see, I mean, I gotta say it, it's in the text here. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Paul sells elsewhere. And so Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that all of our self-righteous efforts at religion are just a steaming pile of scubula. That's what he's saying. I mean, Paul, he just keeps getting feistier and feistier, right? Why does he do that? It's because it's warranted. It's warranted. In Isaiah, we're told that our righteousness is as filthy rags. That's another gentle way of saying menstrual rags. I know, it's gross. It's supposed to be. That's what self-righteous religion is in the eyes of God. It's disgusting to him. Think about that. Seriously, whatever it needs to do to get it in your head next time you're taking care of business in the bathroom at home, think, man, this, this, this nastiness, this is what my self righteous religion is like in the eyes of God. You need to get that. <laughs> Paul's not messing around. He's not, he's not skirting around the issue here when he chooses this word. He was a respected man, an educated man, the kind of guy that would never write a word like that in a letter. To a church but there it is scuba you see you need to get it. that our self righteousness is never enough it's never enough it's an offense to the gospel a lot of people think that being Christian is to stop doing bad things and start doing righteous things but Paul says no the gospel isn't just about repenting of our sins but repenting of our righteousness too, our self-righteousness. It's seeing both license and legalism of two ways of being your own savior. License or licentiousness is where you're saying, look, I don't care about the standards. I don't care about God's righteous standards, so I'm just gonna do whatever the heck I want. I have a license to do whatever I want, right? On the other hand, legalism is saying, you know, I'm, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gain my righteousness by, by, by proving it to God, by resting in what I can do, puffing myself up, making me feel like, like I've earned my way at God's table and like I'm better than others who can't keep up with me. Paul says both of those things. License and legalism are two ways of really just being your own savior. Writing your own salvation plan as if there wasn't already one written. Both of those draw us away from Christ. And so if that's the case, if even our righteousness isn't enough, man, what hope do we have? If our righteousness isn't enough, well, what hope do we have? Where do we get the approval that we need? It leads us to our last and final point. I actually mean finally. <laughs> point three, the gift of Approval. The gift of approval of righteousness that Christ gives. Verse 9. Read it with me. He says, And being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. (laughs) You see, a disciple of Jesus is someone who knows that God's love is not based on performance or pedigree. It's not based on anything that we've done. It's based entirely on what Christ has done. On the cross, Jesus' last words, tetelestai, it is finished. It is finished. He meant that. He meant that. What it means to be a Christian is not that you do Christiany things. What makes you a Christian primarily is that you, verse 9 says, are found in Him. You rest in Him. You trust in Him. Your identity is swallowed up in Him. And then from there, you start to grow in holiness. But you don't, you don't, you don't grow in holiness in order to earn your way into Him. You need to be found in Him and then you start to bear the fruits of holiness. How do we get this righteousness from Christ? Paul says, by faith alone. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That our penalty was transferred to Christ and His performance was transferred to us. And when we place our faith and trust in him now, we are received by God as though we never sinned and as though we've always been a part of the family. That's the opposite, by the way, of self-righteousness. This is gift righteousness. The gift of approval. And so we receive it. We don't earn it. We just receive it and then let it change us. Let it be the bedrock of all that we are. I love the way that Martin Luther put this when he says, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man can stake his life on it a thousand times. Does that describe your faith this morning? A living daring confidence in the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, may that be true of us. I pray that for our church this week. We need to get that. we bring nothing to the table except faith that he's enough to satisfy our deepest need. You know what that gift does for us? This gift of approval? This gift of righteousness? Few things. First, it just it just changes everything. It changes everything for us, like it did for Paul. Makes us different. The way that we live. Not because we have to live differently, but because we get to. It's a fruit of God's spirit at work in us. It becomes a joy to us starts to make us more like Jesus by his power, not our own. We see this in verse 10 and through 11. He says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What Paul's saying here is that there is a power of resurrection now. The spiritual power of resurrection that is coursing through the veins of those who believe. And it changes you, changes your worldview, your self-view, and continues to change you. God doesn't save you and then sit back and sort of like judge your performance. This salvation work is more like a heart change, more like adoption So that you start to want to change, not because you have to, but because you get to. And then God helps you like any other good father would. It also makes us bold in the face of suffering. His gift of righteousness makes us bold in the safe of, 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 of suffering. We get a new perspective on suffering and hardship. Uh, I mean, you read there in verse 10, and he says, uh, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul says, look, all my losses, all my pain, all my suffering, even these changes that I'm wearing right now, even the opinion of others that I tried to prove myself to with my resume, in all the ways that I fall short, in all my losses and pain and suffering, they'll be used by God to make me more like Jesus. So even the hard times are opportunities to be more sanctified and to be more and more like Jesus. So God doesn't waste anything in my life. And he uses it all, even my suffering, for his glory and my good. Lastly, lastly, it makes us peaceful. This approval that we have in Christ alone by faith alone, and make us at peace before God and before others. You see, Paul lost his reputation when, when he left the Pharisees. He used, to, he used to slaughter Christians and then he became one. And then his old Pharisee homeboys like hated him. He was all of a sudden marked as an enemy by them. Paul lost his reputation, but he gained true righteousness. He gained true righteousness, true approval. He can rejoice now in Christ. The pressure, Paul says, to prove yourself is off. Man, that should be good news for some of you this morning. You don't have to prove yourself. Some of you feel constantly crushed by failure. The good news that Paul wants you to hear this morning is that you can rest in Christ. Be at peace in the salvation that he gives as a gift. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove yourself. You just have to receive it. Amen. I'll close with the words from this old hymn. This old hymn, and I want us to make it our prayer right now. This old hymn that says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on jesus name thank you for listening to the king's cross church podcast we'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering if you're ever in the
0: orange county california area we'd love it if you come by and visit on a sunday morning for meeting times and locations or any other information about us please visit kx.church there's no dot com in that, just kx church. Thanks again for listening.